Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Good morning, everybody. Okay. After, um, after a hiatus for the Pesach holiday, we are back uh, with Morin Avuchim. Raboisai, I'm sorry, we're just trying to have the sheer. Thank you. So uh, we're back with Morin Avuchim, and we are in the first section, chapter five. We got about halfway through chapter five, and we're going to finish chapter five today, Bezrat Hashem. And I want us to go and review what we had seen up until now. Remember, the Rambam's project is to try and explain to us terminologies that appear in Tanakh that can sometimes appear at face value to be misleading, especially when they are descriptive of Hashem and or the encounter between man and God. And when it comes to a Navi having some kind of encounter with the divine and the infinite, many times language fails to properly describe what is occurring. And many times the Tanakh will use metaphoric language in order to describe that type of encounter. The Rambam feels that it is necessary from a religious and philosophical point of view to distance any kind of physical um, characteristics from Hashem. And it is for that reason that he focuses specifically at the beginning of Mora Nevuchim in explaining that any time where you see a term that seems to ascribe physicality, corporeality to Hashem, it's a borrowed term, it's a metaphor. Therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu first has his encounter with the divine, and it talks about seeing something about God, you can't see that which is not physical, that which is invisible physically. And therefore, this is all metaphorical. The, uh, the Rambam also understands that the prophetic experience is something that requires a maturation process. It requires a process of growth, of intellectual growth, in order to be to the level where a person can truly understand the prophetic experience that he is having. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was at the very beginning of his career of being a Navi, um, did not feel adequate in his initial encounter with the divine. That was the story of the burning bush that the Rambam discussed in the first half of chapter five. And therefore, why did Moshe hide his face? He didn't hide his face, as the Torah says, by Esther Moshe Panav, that Moshe hid his face because he was scared of looking or gazing upon God. This does not mean that God has 
a physical visage. It doesn't mean that there's a scary uh, uh, image that was facing Moshe, but rather he felt that he was inadequate in being able to properly comprehend this, the enormity of the, um, of the experience that he was having, this intellectual experience of trying to cognize God in some way. And like he says, and not that the deity who is greatly exalted above every deficiency can be apprehended by the eyes. Now, the Rambam is going to set up now a contrast with another episode that takes place in the book of Shemos, in the book of Exodus, where people gaze upon God but do not have the same kind of shame or sense of... Um, needing to cover themselves or to cover their face because of the enormity of the experience. And this is where it's on page, the top of page 30 in the Pines edition. The nobles of the children of Israel, on the other hand. Now, who is he referring to? This is um, from Exodus chapter 24, verse 11, Pasuk Yod Aleph. Ve'el atzilei b'nei Yisrael. Now, what is the whole Pasuk? The, the, the Psukim, starting with Pasuk Tess, says, Vayal Moshe Aharon Nadav Avihu Vishivim Yisrael. This is the story of the receiving of the Torah Har Sinai. At the end of Parshas Mishpatim, it says that Moshe Aharon Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders of Israel all ascended to go up to the mountain and to have some kind of divine encounter. Vayiru Ace Eloke Yisrael. They saw the God of Israel. I'm just reading to you the psukim now. This is not in the, in the text of the Morim. The tachat raglav kimaasei livnata sapir ucheetzem hashamayim latohar. And under his legs, under God's feet, which we're not going to explain now what that means. That's clearly an anthropomorphism. Was like brickwork made of sapphire or some other kind of marble or stone work and like the essence of the heavens in its purity. The nobles of the children of Israel, he did not send forth his hand. Now that's very cryptic what that means. What does that Pasuk mean? That these noblemen who were part of the 70 elders, they gazed upon God or some kind of representation of God, and God did not send forth his hand against them. And they gazed upon Hashem, and they ate and they drank. That's what we need to analyze. According to the Rambam, the Torah is speaking critically about the people who looked upon God. And in contrast with Moshe, whereas Moshe in his initial encounter with the divine hides his face because of the enormity of the experience and his recognition of his, in, his own inadequacy, these leaders did not hide their face and instead ate and drank. And we have to also understand what does it mean to eat and drink. So before we go any further, I want you to note that our sages have a commentary upon this in the Medrash Tanchuma, which is in source number seven. And by the way, if you're watching from Facebook, if you go to the Facebook group, Shi'ur An Moren Vuchim, you will able, you'll be able to find that this has been uploaded as a JPEG file. Um, I want you to take a look at 
the, 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 a few lines into source number seven, um, where it starts off with the words esfali. Okay, esfali v'chilohayu zekenim kodim lachen. God tells Moshe in the book of Numbers, gather for me 70 elders. Now this is an episode where, of the story of Eldad and Medad, where there is going to be some kind of um, spilling off of uh, spiritual uh, greatness from Moshe onto the 70 elders. God says, get me 70 elders, and we're going to have them share with you in the burden of leading the Jewish people. Okay, it's a totally separate story from the story of the story of Matan Torah. But the Medrash asks the question, and this is a Medrash in Parshas Balos Chasim and Tezayin, Vaharei Bahar Sinai Nemar Vayal Moshe Veron Veshivim Izikne Yisrael, Vaharsha Hazua Acharka Chaita Vehichan Hayu Hazakenim. The Medrash asks a very simple question. Why does God tell Moshe, gather me 70 elders, if all the way back at the story of Har Sinai, there already were 70 elders. Why does Moshe have to gather people who already existed? The answer is, says the Medrash, that if you look at the story in Parshat Bahalotcha in the book of Numbers, shortly before this story of God telling Moshe to gather the 70 elders, it says that the nation were complaining and a fire spread among them as a punishment for their complaining. Nisrifu kulam And what that fire did was that it incinerated the original 70 elders so that they perished. Those 70 elders who had gone up with Moshe at Har Sinai were, were executed by God for a crime that they committed. Their incineration was just like the incineration of Nadav and Avihu. Because they acted in a lightheaded fashion or in a frivolous or non-serious fashion when they ascended the mountain, as Nadav and Avihu did. In other words, according to this Midrash, Nadav and Avihu died by incineration as a penalty for having gone up to Mount Sinai with the improper attitude. And therefore, the remainder of those elders, the other, the other 70 elders who went up with Nadav and Avihu, perished later by burning for the very same crime. As it says that they gazed upon God and they ate and they drank. So asks the Medrash, what kind of eating and drinking? They're in the middle of the desert ascending a mountain. They went up with Moshe up to the mountain to Harsina. What they took, they took mutton with them? I mean, and they took wine flasks. What did they why would they take these things with them? There was no food or drink on top of Mount Sinai. So Mashallahadavar <laughs> Dome. So the Medrash says, you know what we can compare this to? Le'eved shahayam shamer et rabo. It's com- comparable to a servant who was watching over his master. And while he's, he's hired to guard over his master and protect him. Uprusato biado v'hu no sheikh mimena. And he's got a loaf of bread in one hand while he's standing guard. 
and he's taking a bite, eating a sandwich. Now, sometimes the security guards, I wish they would take their job a little bit more seriously, especially in today's world. I don't, I don't feel comfortable when I walk into the building and I see one of the security guards looking at his phone or eating a sandwich. But essentially, that's the image that the Midrash is creating. And so therefore, when the Torah says that they ate and drank, it was that they had a cavalier attitude about this encounter with the divine. It was as if they were eating a sandwich. Not literally they were eating a sandwich, but it was as if they were eating a sandwich while having this initial encounter with Hashem. And therefore, all of them, at that moment, deserved to be punished. However, but because the event of the giving of the Torah was so important and precious to Hashem, that's why, but that God said, look, I don't want to share the simcha. I don't want to disrupt the, this monumental event by causing people to die. It's ironic, isn't it, that Nadav and Avihu do share the simcha of the, of the consecration of the Mishkan. But apparently that was less of a share. God says, Matan Torah is Lidorot, is for all of eternity. I don't want that to be associated with the execution of people who are going to get the Torah. And therefore, I'm going to defer the punishment, the penalty, the ultimate penalty that I have to mete out against Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders until sometime later. And by the way, the Abarbanel says that this deferment, this deferral of punishment is what happened to Moshe and Aaron as well. Um, in, but, 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 but for different crimes. For Moshe, it was the sin of the spies. For Aharon, it was the construction of the golden calf. And Hashem deferred their punishment for, uh, for another reason. But you, f- you find this idea of deferral of, of punishment is a consistent theme. That I'm not going to punish you now because it's, it's, not, it's not the right time, but later on you're going to get your penalty. Now, I'm going to hold the medrash over here even though the medrash continues. But based on this medrash, the Rambam is basing himself on this medrash to explain the, fa- the, the episode. So, the nobles of the children of Israel, on the other hand, were overhasty, strained their thoughts and achieved apprehension, but only an imperfect one. And that was their crime, is that they were too hasty in trying to apprehend and trying to, under, to understand the divine encounter that they were having, and they didn't have the proper COVID rosh, the proper sobriety and seriousness <clears throat> in understanding the material. And that's where, why he started off this chapter quoting Aristotle, who said that when you encounter difficult esoteric material, you must take it seriously and take it slowly. And if you don't, you run the risk of running off the rails and getting everything wrong. Hence it is said of them, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, and so on, and not merely, and they saw the God of Israel. For these words are solely intended to present a criticism of their act of seeing, not to describe the manner of their seeing. Thus they were solely blamed for the form that their apprehension took, inasmuch as corporeality entered into it to some extent. So the Rambam writes that when the Torah describes what they actually saw, 
the Torah is saying their understanding of what they were experiencing was translated in their imperfect intellects as some kind of physical illustration of God. And the reason why it, it came out, it came into their minds as a physical illustration of some kind of brickwork was because they hadn't properly prepared for the prophecy. Had they properly prepared themselves for the prophetic experience, they would not have associated the divine with any kind of physical um, uh, attribution of brickwork under his feet and so forth. This being necessitated by their over-hasty rushing forward before they had reached perfection. They deserved to perish. However, Moshe, peace be upon him, interceded for them, and they were granted a reprieve until the time they were burnt at Tav-e-Ra, which is the description of the Medrash, at Tav-e-Ra, which is uh, the place of burning in the book of Numbers. Whereas Nadav and Avihu were burnt in the tabernacle of the congregation, as is stated in a correct tradition. Now this having happened to these men, it behooves us all the more as being inferior to them, and it behooves those who are inferior to us, to aim at and engage in perfecting our knowledge of preparatory matters and in achieving those premises that purify apprehension of its taint, which is errors. And therefore, what's the lesson for us, says the Rambam? The lesson for us is we're, we're entering into very esoteric material. The Rambam in the Mishnah Torah calls the, the uh, philosophical speculation as entering into the Pardes. It is and we'll, we'll get into this discussion more when we talk about the Pardes, the story in Maseches Chagiga of the great sages who entered into this orchard, which according to the Rambam is philosophical speculation. And out of the four sages, only Rabbi Akiva was able to emerge undamaged because he properly prepared himself. It's the very same type of um, description you have the biblical description of an imperfect philosophical speculative experience, and you have the Talmudic description as well. But the lesson, of course, for all of us is when we engage on esoteric matters, philosophical matters, we have to be very, very careful. We have to go through the preparatory stages of trying to understand basic principles of philosophy before we go into more advanced uh, principles about God. It will then go forward to look upon the divine holy presence. It is accordingly said, and let the priests also that come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And this, uh, of course, is a, I'm, I'm just trying to see if I have this, uh, yeah. Also, this Pasuk discussing the giving of the Torah. The Kohanim who are going to approach God shall sanctify themselves which the Rambam says has got nothing to do with ritual purification, but rather has to do with intellectual preparation. You're about to encounter the divine, prepare yourselves. Accordingly, Solomon has bidden the, the man who wishes to reach this rank to be most circumspect. He said warningly in parabolic language, guard thy foot when thou goes to the house of God, which is a quote from Kohelis, shemor rag lecha ka'asher telechel beis elokim. Be careful. Watch your feet. Watch where you step. One misstep could be disastrous when you enter into the speculative pardes of trying to understand divine matters. Now, he then says, I shall now go back to complete what we began to explain, 
which is the story of the 70 elders who went up to Harsinai. And I shall say, because of the hindrances that were a stumbling block to the nobles of the children of Israel in their apprehension, their actions too were troubled. Because of the corruption of their apprehension, they inclined toward things of the body. Because they perceived God in some corporeal fashion, they were, they were thinking about physical matters, and therefore they indulged in physical things. Hence it says, and they visioned God and did eat and drink. As for the rest of this passage, namely from the words of scripture, and there was under his feet, as it were, a work of the, the whiteness of sapphire stone and so on, it will be explained in some of the chapters of this treatise. Okay, I'll, I'll explain this more fully, he says, when we get into it further. It's unclear from the language of the Rambam whether he it takes the words eating and drinking literally, unlike the Midrash, or whether he says that eating and drinking are metaphorical terms like the Medrash says. It's, I, I think he's subscribing to the Medrash here as well. And what he means to say is, is that attitudinally, they were focused on physical matters, on matters of the body. And that is also because they had not properly prepared themselves. And therefore, eating and drinking is not necessarily to be taken literally, but rather it's to be taken metaphorically that they over-focused on matters of the body. Now, I do want to point out that whereas the Rambam uh, subscribes to the Medrash Tanchuma that we just read, there is another position among the medieval authorities, among the medievalists. I want to share with you the opinion of the Ramban, and that will be one of the last things that we take a look at today. By the way, here, this is one example where Rashi and Rambam are aligned because the Rambam is taking the Midrashic approach, because it suits him. Because the Rambam, again, is trying to focus on distancing any sense of corporeality from Hashem. So therefore, this, the Midrashic account over here very much fits into his worldview. But the Ramban takes issue with this interpretation. And his opinion is that because there is no description of crime being committed at this story in Parshas Mishpatim, it just says, they gazed upon God and ate and drank. Nowhere do we see that God is offended. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that God became angry. It doesn't, there's no indication from the text that there was any crime committed. The Ramban says that there was nothing wrong with this. As a matter of fact, what they did was perfectly appropriate and correct. So if you take a look, it's a very short Ramban, source number nine. The Tam Vaishtu Sha'asu Simcha Viyomtov. Why did they eat and drink upon ascending Mount Sinai and gazing upon Hashem or having this prophetic experience? Because you have to make a Simcha because of this monumental event. It is an obligation to rejoice when you receive the Torah. We know at the very end of the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, what does the Torah say? That when you erect these 12 monolithic stones that have the entire Torah written on them and you put them at your border, then you shall offer shlamim sacrifices and eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord your God because you've just completed writing the Torah and placing it as a monument on your borders of Eretz Yisrael. Uchsiv bishlomo, and it says similarly by Shlomo HaMelech, ha-chokhmah v'hamadah nasun lach v'gomer, 
that when God granted Shlomo great wisdom, then immediately what did he do? He made a kiddush, right? He made a simcha, right? The Amar Rebbe Elazar Mikan Sin Mishte Torah, and the Medrash even comments on that from Shlomo Hamelech, and it says that when you complete the Torah and you make a siyum, you have to have some kind of festive meal. Why? Because in order to um, demarcate that what you are experiencing now is something monumental, important, and a cause for rejoicing, you demarcate that by indulging in physical pleasure as well. Those of you who were around for my uh, Shabbos Hagadol Drasha, you know that the whole idea of Simchas Yom Tov, uh, we talked about that, it involves eating and drinking. The Torah, the Rambam himself writes that the Torah obligates us to have simcha on Yom Tov. How do you engage in simcha? God can't necessitate an emotional state, but he can tell you to do things that will bring you to that emotional state, which is achilat uh, basar, eating meat, ushtiyat yain, and drinking wine. V'neamar b'david aviv b'hitnadvam levinyan beit ha-mikdash v'yizbechu l'ashem zvachim v'yalu olot l'ashem v'gomer v'yochlu v'yishtu l'fnei Hashem v'yom ahu b'simcha gedola. And King David also, after everyone had donated to the construction of the temple that would eventually be built by David's son Solomon, after everything was donated, they offered burnt offerings and then they all ate and drank because it was a great simcha. V'avkan b'yom chatunata Torah kein asu. And therefore, on the day of the wedding of the Torah, so to speak, on the day when the Jewish people are married to God and the, and the Torah itself is the ketubah of that relationship, they make a simcha. They make a celebration. Now, this difference of opinion between the Ramban and the Rambam, between Nachmanides and Maimonides, is an important one to store in our data banks. And the reason is, is because if we were to generalize the difference in worldviews between Maimonides and Nachmanides, one of the differences we would conclude is the Rambam is, a, is more of a rationalist than an intellectual, um, uh, it, it takes an intellectual approach when speaking about uh, the encounter with the divine, these kinds of very spiritual esoteric matters. And the Ramban takes a more mystical approach, which means supernatural. Not intellectual, not rational, but supra-rational. Um, you know, transcending that which is rational, that, you know, when there, there are two ways to understand the four sages who entered into the Pardes. One is, is that they, had a, they engaged in philosophical speculation. And the other way is to explain that they had an out-of-body experience where their neshamas left their bodies and they went up to Shemayim. Now, two different ways of describing a, um, an esoteric experience, but one involves the, in, the intellect and the other one involves something supernatural. The Ramban is a supernaturalist. The, Ram, the Rambam is the rationalist. And so for the Ramban, using physical things in order to celebrate a supernatural experience is perfectly natural. For the Rambam, using physical things to celebrate a purely intellectual experience which perforce is, is divested of the physical is not natural. And therefore, the Rambam has to conclude 
that any admixture of physical trappings to the experience of encountering the divine is in itself something criminal. <coughs> but for the Ramban, you have Shabbos, and on Shabbos you have good food. It's not a contradiction. Shabbos is an ultimately spiritual experience, but you, you demarcate that spiritual high with the indulgence of physical things, physical pleasures. Okay? So this is where I'd like to hold it today and just finish off with the last few lines of, the, of chapter 5. Our whole purpose was to show that whenever the words seeing, vision, and looking occur in this sense, intellectual apprehension is meant, meant and not the eyesight, as God may he be exalted, is not an, exi an existent that can be apprehended with the eyes. If, however, an individual of insufficient capacity should not wish to reach the rank to which we desire him to ascend, and should he consider that all the words figuring in the Bible concerning the subject are indicative of sensual perception of created lights, be they angels or something else, why, there is no harm in his thinking this. And what the Rambam basically concludes is, look, I've just given you the MS. I've told you the way things truly are. Whenever you have verbs like seeing associated with God, there's no physical um, representation of God. But if a person wants to di digress from my MS, says the Rambam, and he wants to interpret it differently, and he wants to say, well, God created a physical representation of some angelic being or some light so that a person could experience or could understand even on a physical plane that he was having some kind of divine encounter, nothing wrong with that. As long as you don't attribute physicality directly to God, the Rambam says, I'm okay with that. It's not true, that's not really what the Torah means, but if, you are, uh, if you're a purist and going after Pashat Pshat, and you, you think that you, you just have too difficult of a time bridging the gap between the text and what I'm explaining to you, and that's the way you want to interpret it. It's simplistic, it's provincial, your understanding of the text, but if that's the way you're going to use it, no harm done, no harm, no foul. I'm not here to try and completely break your foundations, but I'm just telling you the reality of the way you're supposed to understand it. Questions, comments? Yes? So if, if we have a concept that God is everywhere, and, we all, and it, it, I'm not saying that Maybe I'm saying something that's incorrect. And we have a concept from Rambam that God isn't physical. What exactly, what enhanced presence were they in front of? When they went up the mountain, was there more of God there than he was elsewhere? And, right. and if it's not physical, what was there? A lot of learning? What, 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 what was happening that, that they were more in the presence of God than they would have been back in the church? Well, that's a general question of what is the prophetic experience. What is, what is a prophetic experience? If God is everywhere, then what is prophecy? So, so we don't usually think of prophecy as words coming from God to the prophet to give him instruction, and we often, you know, God is talking to. Well, well yes, I mean that, that, that's the way that it's depicted in Tanakh. But prophetic, but prophecy can also be a vision of something without words. It can be an illustration, like we find many times in the later prophets in Yechezkel and so forth. So, so. Are they having a, a vision here? They're, they're having some kind of, of vision. It's a flawed vision, according to the Rambam. And it's a flawed, flawed vision. Because, because they are flawed. They haven't developed themselves yet properly to be able to have this completely non-physical encounter. So I, I, I'm sorry. How, how does the Rambam, 
understand the first part of, of that when 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 the Kumar, when Torah says that they they saw they saw Hashem. I, I mean, so he differs with Rambam on the. He, he holds there was nothing wrong with it. There was that nothing they, that they really saw. God. They saw some representation of Hashem in a prophetic way, just prophetic. just like just like any prophet sees God. Uh-huh. Yeah. So is the Rambam saying that ideally they shouldn't have celebrated in any way whatever this encounter was? The Rambam. The Rambam. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying that there was no says, need for there was no need for any kind of celebration. He doesn't understand the words eating and drinking as a celebration. He understands it as a criticism that the Torah is lodging against these people and that they did not take the encounter seriously. They took it in a very cavalier fashion. And that's like, he, he subscribes to the Medrash, which says that it doesn't literally mean eating and drinking. It means it's like they were eating a sandwich while they were doing something very important. So if they had taken it seriously, how, what what would, in the Rambam's mind, be their reaction to whatever it is they encountered? The, the Torah would have just said, uh-huh. they, they gazed upon Hashem. It would not have described, it would not, he says that in the text, it would not have been for any further dis- descriptive. The fact that the Torah writes that the vision that they saw had some kind of physical attributes to it is in itself a description of a criticism. When you, because when you truly apprehend God as he is, he is completely devoid of any physical attributes. Yeah, it sort of begs the question about what, you know, how they may have changed or what was the impact on them of this encounter. I mean, if it, if it shouldn't have been some kind of physical impact, it surely had some impact. So what was, what was the impact on them? Presumably, the impact that is on any prophet, you know, who who has an encounter with the divine, mm-hmm. even an imp- even an imperfect encounter with the divine will leave an impact upon the individual, mm-hmm. you know. But e- every individual is unique. Okay. Celebrating a crime for for its punishment by a, a big amount of time and not ascribing anything in the text that this is the reason that someone died, do, do we not lose the effect of? Learning from crime and, and being punished? Excellent, excellent question. Sometimes you can lose the, the, uh, the effect. Sometimes you can. So the question really is, what, what was the purpose of the punishment? Was the purpose of the punishment to, as, to, to be an education? Sometimes punishment is meant to educate. And to educate others. And to educate others. But sometimes the punishment is not meant to educate, but rather for the purpose of justice alone. Something to discuss for the future. Well, there's also, I mean, there's also, uh, there's, a, there's a principle in, in law, like in, in, the, in the Supreme Court, that you don't, that you can't do judgments that aren't going to be received properly. Like that just because something is right or wrong doesn't necessarily mean that, that, uh, that the punishment is, is, is going to be regarded appropriately. So if Hashem figured that, that there's no way that people would understand that punishment at that time, that, the only, that, that what they would really understand is the punishment of Nadav and Aviyu, you know, giving this, this inappropriate offering. Correct. That they would understand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that that's, it, yeah. If he meted out the 